We'll be talking about Jesus' first miracle. We need a miracle here. I'm sure as you think about the world that we live in, if you spend five minutes listening to the news, or if you just look at what's going on uh, in our neck of the woods, so to speak, uh, you can see that we do need miracles. We need Jesus. We need uh, mercy that we don't deserve. We need grace that uh, can only come from God. But as we look today through our walk through John, we see Jesus's first miracle. Now, a miracle is defined from Webster's Dictionary as an event manifesting divine intervention in human affairs. The healing miracles described in the gospel. So I love the fact that even the dictionary gives credit where credit is due. That a miracle is of God. A miracle is God working in heavenly proportions through us here on this earth. And miracles are a result of God working in ways that we cannot explain. Things that will be for the greater good of ourselves. Have you ever said, man, I need a miracle? Or have you ever thought to yourself, boy, it would sure take a miracle for this to happen. Or maybe, hey, that was a miracle. Speaking of miracles, I've got to give credit where credit's due. How about the South Carolina Gamecocks beating Marquette? They're still in the playoffs, right? We excited about that? Oh, come on now. They're in our backyard. I mean, it's been, there you go, you can clap. Clemson fans can clap too, that's all right. I mean, 44 years before they have not been in a playoff game for the national championship. 44 years, and yet here they are, and they handily beat Marquette uh, by uh, a great margin, 93 to 73. So some would say that that is a miracle, and some people would stay, say still that is a miracle. But the miracle that, I, that I'm talking about today is something that is far bigger and greater than a basketball game. But speaking of miracles, have I told you this one? There were three men that were stranded on a desert island. They were hungry, they were tired, and all they had were themselves. And so they were walking along the beach one day, and a bottle washed up. And so they took the bottle, and they opened the bottle, and poof, a genie came out. And the genie said, hello, men, I will give you three wishes. Well, the first man thought about it, and he said, you know what? I would love to be in Paris eating beignets and enjoying the Eiffel Tower and, and all of these other things. So poof, he's gone. And then the next guy says, boy, well, you know what? I would really love to go to Texas and get one of those big steaks. And so poof, he's gone. And that third guy thought about it. He goes, you know what? I sure do miss my friends. I wish he'd come back. Poof. That was not the miracle they were looking for. That was, uh, that was short-sightedness on the last guy. But, but either way, uh, that is not the miracle that we're talking about today. We don't need a, a magic genie coming out of a bottle. We have a, a Savior that we serve and an all-powerful God that did miracles in the Old Testament. He did miracles in the New Testament. And he does miracles for us today. But I want us to take a look for a second. Have you ever thought, why did Jesus perform miracles? Why did he have to do that? Well, miracles in the scriptures, they were actually acts of God that proclaimed his sovereign power. Jesus never did a miracle just for the sake of a miracle. 
Jesus even never did a miracle just because he felt sorry for someone. Because we see account after account in the New Testament, did Jesus always heal everybody that was brought to him? No. Specific people for specific reasons. And what was that reason? To glorify God and to show that God had power over creation. And the miracles are significant because they serve a larger purpose in God's redemptive plan. You realize, as we look at Jesus, as we go through John, every miracle had one purpose and one purpose only, to establish him as a Savior who has come to this world, as to be God and human, all in one, but to be answering to no man on earth, but answer to God alone. So these miracles, they testify to the authenticity of God's messengers and his message. For example, if you go back and you think about Moses in the Old Testament and all the miracles that he did with the, the plagues of the locusts and the frogs and, and the stick turning to a snake, all of these different things, why was God interested in doing all these parlor tricks? It's because no one had ever seen anything like that before. And so God wanted to let Pharaoh and all these other people know that this guy has authority. This guy has got my blessings. This guy has got my backing. But someone might ask, and you might be one of those people that would ask, well, why doesn't God allow miracles like we see in the the Bible? Why doesn't he continue to do them today like the apostles? Is that a fair question? Why don't we see all the miracles today that were in the Bible? Well, the miracles of the Old Testament and the New Testament pointed to God's redemptive plan through Jesus Christ. But here's the thing. Jesus Christ is the ultimate, ultimate expression of God's mercy. Jesus Christ is the ultimate miracle. Seeing parlor tricks and seeing, like we see today, water turn into wine, or, or seeing people healed in, in a, a, a big crowd like we saw in the Bible. Then listen, God still heals today. God is the ultimate physician. I have seen people healed. I have seen people walk away. I have seen God do amazing things in people's lives. And even in my life as well. Does God still do miracles? Absolutely. But worth chronicling like they do in the Scriptures? No, because Jesus is the ultimate miracle. God's saying is basically the reason we don't see those things today, if you won't believe in Jesus, you won't believe in anything I do. That's why we don't see those type of things today. He says, I've given you my best. What else is it going to take? That's why we don't see those things these days. But as we look at our passage this morning, Jesus had grown up in a very typical child that day he was he was in a typical home even at 12 years old he was teaching in a synagogue to adult teachers and blowing their minds and there is nothing recorded about Jesus that would stand out until the passage that we read today i mean basically Jesus was just waiting for his moment he was waiting for the opportunity and so we see here today that this miracle would begin the time clock that would last roughly three and a half years until his crucifixion. Understand this, as we study this miracle today, this miracle that is found in John chapter 2 is the beginning point, the starting point of the cross. 
That's a pretty big deal. So we see that, first of all, Jesus' miracles were based on your need. Jesus' miracles were based on your need. You see, uh, in the current time in which Jesus did this, the main form of religion was Judaism. You know, it, was, it was all about the rituals and the religious duties and the laws that you kept. And it was an empty shell of what it once was. God's people had begun to go through the motions of their worship. Now, I know that we're not Jewish here today and we're not Judaizers, but at the same time, be very careful because coming to church could be an act of going through the motions. Okay, I, I get up, I go, I have my lunch, I go home, I take a nap, and then I do whatever I want to do. Right? I mean, that's, there's nothing wrong with that. Hey, amen. But do not miss the fact that you are in the presence of Jesus Almighty. That He is here. And this is not a religious service. This is an opportunity for you to enhance your relationship with God and one another. Which is that what, that is what God has commanded us to do anyway. What is that? The greatest commandment is what, church? To love God and love others. And that's why we're here today. But Judaism was not meeting up to what God was requiring of His people. And quite honestly, God's people were not meeting His requirement. It, exist, it existed as a religious system, but it gave no comfort for forgiveness for the heart of man. Israel had lost the joy of their chosen status with God. Because we see here is we know that they run out of wine. And I want to tell you that, that wine is symbolic in the Bible of joy. There was no more joy in the worship of Judaism. It was all rules and regulations and political power. So we come to this point in chapter 2, verse 1. It says, on the third day, this is after the calling of Nathanael. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding as well. When the wine ran out, Jesus' mother told him, they don't have any wine. What has this concern of yours to do with me, woman? Wow. Why in the world would he talk to his mother like that? We'll talk about that in just a second. Jesus asked, my hour has not yet come. Do whatever he tells you, his mother told the servants. So in those verses, we see that miracles mean that we follow Jesus, not the other way around. Understand that. We follow Jesus. We do not dictate to Jesus what he does for us. You see, Mary is not listed by her name only as Jesus' mother. Why in the world did John list her as just the mother of Jesus and not Mary? Here's the thing, folks. John didn't want to, to esteem or to raise up Mary to the point to where she would be worshipped above all other women. It wasn't about lifting up Mary, the mother of Jesus. It was about lifting up Jesus himself. And as I told you, in every miracle there's a deeper meaning. Mary was symbolic. By, by using her, her position as the mother of Jesus, she is an illustration for Israel in this miracle. And Mary assumed that because she was Jesus' mother, that she could tell him what to do. They don't have any wine, meant You need to do something about this. It's kind of like when somebody comes up to you and they say, what we need to do is we need to go do this. And you look around 
Where are they at? She was saying, Jesus, we need wine. And remember, she knew who he was, right? She knew that he was the Son of God. So she basically said, you need to do something. Well, Mary knew Jesus' status, but the wedding was a week-long festivity. Can you imagine a wedding lasting a week? Whew! That, that was some, some, some deal there. A week-long wedding, but Jesus answered his mother in verse 4, What concern of this is, what concern of yours has this to do anything with me? Jesus is calling his mother woman in this instance. I want to understand that when we, we read it with today's standards, we're like, man, that was pretty rude. But that was not rude in that culture. He was not, he was not trying to be sarcastic to his mother. He was not sassing his mother. But when he said the word woman here, he was basically again wanting to make sure that she was not elevating herself above others, but more importantly, that others would elevate her to a higher status than she needed to be. Jesus would later refer to Mary again as woman. Do you remember when it was? When he was on the cross. And he said, John, take this woman and take care of her. He loved his mother. But at this point, he is breaking the tie between from son and mother to divine God. He was her son, but now he's transitioning to be your savior. So when you read woman, understand what that meant. It it was a, a term of prestige. He loved her, but he was beginning to establish himself as a divine son of God. Remember, this is his first miracle. And we, as you see on the screen, we do not dictate to Jesus what he must do in our lives. We must follow him and do as he says. Mary pointed to Jesus as the solution, not herself, because she knew who he was. Folks, let me tell you something. Frustration will result when we expect God to work in ways that we think he should. If God is not working in the way you think He should, you will be frustrated. You will be depressed. You will be upset. You will be disillusioned. But understand, it's not God working in the way that we expect, but us following Jesus and working in the way that He's working. There is only one God, and you're not Him. And I'm not him. And so it's very important that we don't dictate to Jesus our terms, but we follow his terms, which is found in his word. And also we see that we are subject to God, not him to us. He says, my hour has not yet come. For a long time, I thought when it says my hour has not yet come, I thought that meant it's not time for me to start my my ministry. It's not time for me to, to start my first miracle. But no, that's not what it means. When he says, my hour has not yet come, do you realize he uses that phrase some seven times in the New Testament? In different occasions, he would say, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. The reason is, is because this hour was referring to the moment of his humiliation. This hour is talking about when he would be on the cross dying for your sins 
and my sins. And he was saying that my hour has not yet come. Jesus corrected his mother because he was God and he was not ready to subject himself to the will of man until an appointed hour. You realize that, right? We, we study the crucifixion and Easter will come up and we'll, we'll preach about it. We'll talk about it. And, and I mean, that is a powerful story, but we didn't kill Jesus. Jesus laid down his life for you. There was nothing that we could have done to cause him. We had no power over that decision. It was his love where he stretched out his arms and he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. It was not our life to take, but his to give. And the second thing we see is that Jesus is our savior. He is with us and he is for us. Verses six or ten, it says, now six stone water jars had been set there for Jewish purification. Each contained 20 or 30 gallons. Fill the jars with water, Jesus told them. So they filled them to the brim. Then he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the chief servant. And they did. When the chief servant tasted the water after it had become wine, he did not know where it came from. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew he called the groom ten, or he called the groom in verse ten and told him, everyone sets out the first, the best wine first. After people have drunk a lot, they bring out the inferior. But you have kept the fine wine until now. Again, there is some symbolism here. What they saw, they saw six stone jars, large jars that would be used for the purification rituals of the of the Jews. And so they would come and before meals and, and as they worship, this was bath water. These were bathtubs, six bathtubs made of stone. And they were empty. What this is a, a reflection of, Jesus is using this to teach them that Judaism and the Old Testament way of worshiping him was empty and it was cold and it was stone. There was no value in it. And that only by him intervening would there be a better way to worship. And so we see that. So to the person who decides to reject Jesus, they will live a life seeming to be fulfilled, but will never find it. That's what was happening in the worship of that day. There was no fulfillment. So my question would be, what is the water jug in your life today? Are you fulfilled in your walk with Christ or are you still empty? I can, I can assure you, if you feel empty this morning, it's not because Jesus isn't there to fill your life. He can take bath water and turn it into something beautiful. And the thing I love about this miracle is, is I don't know if I've always caught this before, but when we see miracles in the New Testament that Jesus does, usually there's somebody there to see it, right? There's somebody there to, to give him credit. Sometimes he would tell them not to go tell people, and other times he would go, he would tell them to go tell people. But here's the thing. In this first miracle, do you see anywhere in this passage where he made a public spectacle of it? Did he ever say, hey y'all, come over here. Everybody in the wedding party, let me go. He goes out to the middle of the wedding and says, I hear you have no more wine. I'm the son of God and I'm going to give you wine right now out of water. Did he do that? No. Did he make a big deal about it? No. He just behind the scenes, he gathered the servants and he said, hey, y'all, 
Come here. Put water in those vats and then scoop it out and then you'll find wine. The only people that knew were the servants there. Why is that? Because Jesus chose to use servants to accomplish his purpose. What I want you to see here, that even for the servants, Jesus brings value to everyday people. Jesus brings value to everyday people. Think about it. Those servants went and filled those pots with water. There, there was no hype about Jesus yet. This was just a guy that said, hey, go do this. And so they go and then they scoop it out and there's this tasty wine. They saw a miracle in that. To the spectators or the wedding guests, they witnessed the miracle of the hands of the servants, not the Savior. They saw what the servants did. The servants brought out the wine. Jesus used humans here to reveal his divinity. Let me say that one more time. Jesus used humans to reveal his divinity. So what does that mean to you and what does that mean to me? What that means is, is that Jesus wants to use you to bring joy into the life of others. He's not in it for his credit. He's not in it for any kind of personal satisfaction. He used God's servants to spread his joy to others, and they didn't even know that Jesus was doing it. Folks, we as believers, as church members, as as people that are called by the Son of God to serve him, we are to take joy and from an overflow of our lives to a world like the wedding guest that had no clue where it came from. They just knew it was good. Imagine what the church could do. When I say the church, I mean capital C, not just Homeland Park, but everybody. Imagine what we could get done as a body of believers if we didn't care about who got the credit. What if we were to do things for Christ and to spread the joy with Christ to other people just because he told us to? The reason we don't do it is because most of us have lost our joy. As David says in Psalm 51, give to me back the joy of my salvation. Because for many, your salvation is not joy, but it's a noose around your neck. You view it as a standard that you always have to meet. But that was never Jesus' intention. That's why we see this miracle even in the first place. But Jesus also gives us a glimpse into the future. He gives us hope. Because what made the difference between the water and the wine? What was the change agent? It was Jesus, his spoken word. The world's joy will leave you empty. Only Jesus can fill, and he completely fills. The Jews' water was for external washing. But the wine that Jesus provides, which is a representation we see in the Lord's Supper, the wine was the blood. The blood that Jesus sheds cleanses our soul. It's eternal. It's internal. And then the miracle revealed his glory. The miracle revealed his glory. The last thing we see is that miracles take great faith to yield God's glory. Miracles take great faith to yield God's glory. And and I, I know I've probably shared this before. Some of you have heard it. Some of you haven't. But I couldn't remember as a child, uh, I had some friends that had a pool membership and 
And mom would let me go to the pool with them. And, and so there was this one pool that had the high dive. How many of y'all have ever been off a high dive? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's not a big deal, right? Well, to a little chubby kid, it was a big deal. And so I see all my friends climbing up this ladder, and I think, oh, I'll never do that. I mean, I had swimming lessons as a kid, so I knew I could swim, but that just seemed like too much to do. So finally, you know, when all your friends do it, that gives you enough nerve to do it, right? My mom would always ask me, if, every, if all your friends jumped into a fire, would you? I said, no, I wouldn't, but I probably would have. Because that's what we all did. But all my friends went on this ladder, and they went on this ladder and jumped off. So I said, okay, I'm going to do it. So I, I walk up the ladder, step by step by step. And, man, it just, you know, getting anxious. And then I get on the board, and I walk out. And if you've ever been on a diving board, you know, I don't know the physics behind this, but I know mass at the end of a, lev- uh, a lever, you know, there, every little Every little movement, you know, it seems like the board was moving with my breathing. You know, it's going, I mean, it seemed like it was forever down there. And so I finally looked around. Everybody's telling me to go. Others are calling me chicken going, bark, bark, bark. You know, that when you're a kid, that you don't want to hear that, you know. So finally, I just get up my nerve. I just close my eyes and I just jump. And it seemed like I was in the air forever and then finally i i you know i hit the water and uh it actually i think it was pretty impressive they said it was a pretty big splash but you know when you're a what was the word i used to use portly when you were a portly little child uh you could always make uh good splashes but uh anyway i'll never forget i thought okay i'm not scared anymore that was awesome so I got up and started doing it more and more and more and more. But I still, that, that moment where I'm at the board and, and it's moving as I breathe and I think, I don't know if I can do this or not. At some point we have to jump, don't we? we for you it might not be a high dive. For you it might be any number of things that, that God has called you to do that you don't know if you can do it or not. But for me, that was just one illustration of many times God has brought me to a point and said, you need to choose one or the other, either jump off or climb back down the ladder. So I just jumped. Well, that jump gave me courage to jump again and again and again. Let me show you this in verses 11 and 12. It says, Jesus performed the first sign in Cana of Galilee. He displayed his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum together with his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Jesus performing this miracle was his step of faith. The act of turning water into wine would alter the entire course of his life. Think about it. Until this miracle, he was just another guy. You know, all I mean, a lot of people probably didn't remember about his birth and, and all the special things about him. He was just Mary's son. His dad was a carpenter. He was just a tradesman. But yet now, all of a sudden, the first miracle sets everything into place. Up to this point, he had led a quiet life. But this point forward, he would be a marked man. He would have to struggle 
to spend time alone with his father. He would be taunted about and talked about by everybody that he came into contact with. He would have people that would plot to kill him. Why did he just leave best alone and say, you know what, I'm sorry they're out of wine, Mom, but there's nothing I can do about it. Not my problem. He couldn't do that because he was obeying his father's will. And it was time for him to jump and put things into motion. God would get the glory for this miracle. This first miracle set the cross in motion. All of this stood out before him as he was requested to simply supply the needed wine. All Mary wanted was some wine for the wedding guests. But this miracle would set into events that would end up being him giving his life, then also resurrecting, then, yes, my friend, also returning. But Jesus did not shrink. He had come to do the will of God, to glorify God, and that is what he's going to do. Now, none of us in here are Jesus, but just as it took him faith to make that first step, to do this miracle, folks, he asks us to take steps as well. The miracle at the wedding made way for Jesus' greatest miracle of all. This first miracle puts into place his greatest miracle of all, and that is your salvation and my salvation. He didn't hide. He didn't run. He put out his chest, and he took it like a man, and he said, it's time, and let's do it. What courage that took. What fearlessness that took. And there's probably a little bit of crazy in that, too. Because sometimes when God calls us to do something, it doesn't make sense. But we just know because of his word and because of what Jesus has taught us that we need to jump. What is the true miracle here? Number one, Jesus wants you to do the divine. In other words, Jesus wants to do the divine through you, just like the servants. When you have a pastor like myself or a a teacher or a friend that encourages you to share your faith. You don't have to get on a street corner and knock people over the head with a five-pound Walmart Bible. You don't need to do that. But having the ability to share your faith and tell people what Jesus means to you, you can be a part of taking the beautiful wine of Jesus Christ, the joy that he gives in giving that to someone else. Jesus doesn't need the credit. He wants to give you an opportunity to do that. He will do in your life unbelievable things if you surrender to him. And then the second thing, God, our creator, wants to have a relationship with you today. Jesus loved you enough to die for you. Jesus loved you enough to die for you. That was the one miracle that you needed that you might not even have known that you need. That miracle has arrived here today. Some of you, many of you in here have prayed to receive Christ. You've been in church longer than I've been alive. I understand that. But I understand that same joy of salvation can be yours today. And is my encouragement to you 
to, as we look at this passage to see that the reason we have Jesus is because everything else was empty and cold and could not deliver only what Jesus could. And that is forgiveness for your sins. And that is eternal life in Christ Jesus. I have done a lot of funerals lately. And I have said it like a broken record that if you are a believer, you can see your loved ones again. That is what we hold hope to. But for those people, the most lost people in the world are the ones that have been church all their lives but have never had a change in their life and never accepted Jesus Christ. The hardest people to reach are the ones sitting in church pews today. I just want you to make sure that your relationship with Jesus is secure. And I want you to understand that he wants to do the amazing through you. And then also, if you would like to receive Christ, if you would like to accept the benefits of that miracle, and you have yet to ask Jesus Christ to come into your life. I invite you to come down front. I'll pray with you, and and I can make sure that you know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that you are a child of His. Maybe you just want to come to the altar. Maybe you want to pray. Whatever it may be, your miracle might be today. Accept Him. Serve Him. And tell others about Him. Would you stand?